You are listening to the DIY Recording Guys podcast, your one-stop information source for DIY music production, with your hosts, Fadim Karaz and Benjamin Hall. Welcome once again to an exciting episode of the DIY Recording Guys. As always, I'm your host, Benjamin Hall from DreamLab Studio, and here's my co-host, I'm Vadim from Calm Frog Recording. Exciting Why do you always laugh again. when I say exciting? <laughs> <laughs> so much pressure. It's two weeks in a row we got to deliver an exciting episode now, all because of your introduction. Yeah. Well, it might not be exciting to all of our listeners, but it's definitely going to be exciting to people who ask questions in our Facebook community, because we ah. are going to take an episode to answer your questions. Yeah, we're going to do the questions we got and then some questions we didn't get <laughs> scoured <laughs> scour the internet for unsolicited advice we're reaching that age group now ben where we can start giving teenagers unsolicited advice back in my day yeah <laughs> you would just get answers to questions you didn't even ask so yes i feel like we have a, a rich legacy there to fulfill <laughs> exactly <laughs> exactly well i'm excited we haven't done this in a while all right so do you want to dive right in? Do I want to dive right in? I don't know. Tell me uh, if you got something exciting to share. Please share it. <sighs> Is there anything exciting? Oh, boy. There's always exciting things going on. I mean, okay, so I'll, I'll preface it by saying this. I'm always working on new exciting music things. But when you ask me this question, I think of outside of the studio because we always talk studio stuff. So that's, that's why okay. I pause. That's Tell why I pause what... all the time. Yeah. Okay. I see. So in other words, if you were focused on this as a studio answer, it would just yes. it would be instant. You would have it would be instant. Ten yes. things to instantly tell me. Maybe not ten things. Five things. But five things. <laughs> well, go for it. Tell me some studio stuff. Sure. So um, I just started working. Well, I just finished up this mix for our band Space Weather, which is a super talented band, and I was. I'm very excited to get their work, get their business, and also that I delivered and they loved what I provided to them. Um, it was a really cool cover of the number one song in the world right now, Montero by Little Nas. Is that right? Yeah. So they did a really cool cover of it, and they're going to be releasing that. I'm actually not sure when they're releasing it, but pretty soon. And so I'm just stoked to be able to work with really a really talented band and uh do something that hopefully will get a lot of traction so that that's that's something i'm excited about How about that's you, always exciting that's one of my favorite things about doing this versus when i would record my own music because it took it it used to take so long to just get your song to like a finished thing and then like then you yeah. have to do the work of like promoting it and I love the feeling now of being able to finish something and then have somebody else promote it and, yeah. <laughs> you know, move on to the next thing, but still be excited. Like later when, you know, sometimes I'll finish mixing something and then it takes a month or two, you know, for the band to get ready for the release and for it to come out. And they're like, hey, this came out. And I'm like, oh, this came out. Yeah, I worked on that. Like, it's, it's, a, it's a really great feeling. Very cool. exciting. Very exciting. Well, I will tell you, I started building, I don't know if you saw on Instagram, I started oh, building yeah. my first ever DIY recording equipment kit. I mentioned on episode 38, we had uh, Peterson Goodwin on our podcast to talk about 
DIY recording equipment. It's a company he started. They're actually based out of Philly and they make kits where you can build your own analog gear. I mean, the kit is very well designed. And I've always been very nervous about the prospect of doing this. Uh, there's a lot of, well, listen to the episode. He, he has a really good take on it. But they did come out with this kit now called the Color Duo, which I, I was really interested in what it does. It, it's kind of, it's a piece of gear that incorporates a lot of things that I want, that I like about analog equipment. Someday we'll probably do an episode on hmm. that, on analog equipment. But anyway, so it was the first kit I ever bought and it's like kind of not an introductory kit because there's so many parts to it um but I'm really it's gonna take me a little while to build it but I'm really enjoying it actually I've been like putting on an audiobook and just <laughs> sitting there with like my resistors and putting them in and the kit is very step by step it's very logical and um I just know it's you know you know when you're connecting a million things like on a signal chain and then you just know it's not going to work the first time you press the on switch <laughs> yeah that's like this is like that times a hundred because there's hundreds of parts and you have to solder them in place and I just know yeah. when I the first time I hit that switch like I just expect that either smoke will come out of it or nothing will come out of it <laughs> <laughs> and that's where the troubleshooting begins but anyway we'll cross that bridge when we get there. So I got a follow-up question for that in case I ever want to get into building my own DIY equipment. Um, so what is the big draw of, or is this part of the draw of building your own DIY equi equipment in that the way you put it together changes the sound or do you, do you get any flexibility over like tone choice options or is it more like building a computer like I just did where it either works exactly the way it's supposed to or you mess something up and it doesn't work at all. That's exactly the question I had for Peterson because mm. I, my thought process was always like you could do it in such a way that you don't get the right sound out of it. And the answer is no. It's like building a computer. It's, it's going to work or it's not going to work. Mm. So I did feel a lot better about that. Um, in fact, he said, <laughs> cause I was asking him about, you know, DIY instrument building kind of like we had, um, who's the guy Joe from? Golden. Yeah. Yeah. We had Joe Golden on from, from Westmoreland string shop. I was thinking this is kind of like what he does where, you know, he's a craftsman and he can build and the, the way you build a guitar and the wood you choose, it can all affect the tone. And I was asking Peterson about that. And Peterson said, oh no, compared to what luthiers do, this is caveman stuff. That was literally his quote. <laughs> That's so, funny. Yeah, so I'm not worried about that, but the gear itself is is really interesting. This company, what they've done is essentially made, uh, like you know, we, we the term plug-in actually comes from analog, back when people were using these big mixer boards and you had these these plug-in components that like was an e equalizer that plugged into the mixer rack and you can pull them out and you know put them into another mixer board that's where the term plug-in comes from so they've kind of brought hmm. that back where they're making hardware plugins these little modules that you can actually change so this 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 it's an analog piece of gear that you can pull the like a drawer out of and swap these little cards which have different sounds and tones on them and yeah i'm really excited to try it out when i finish it and if it works <laughs> i'll definitely do some some shootouts and we'll uh we'll post some some samples of it that, that is um, exciting vadim it's an interesting concept yeah i'm excited about it awesome so do you want to dive in now
Let's dive it. into some of these questions. Okay, so we're going straight to our Facebook community, DIY Recording Guys on Facebook. Um, and so first question comes from Terrence Irvin. He says, that's a biggie. What is the most important aspect of running a studio? I'm going to throw it to you, Vadim. Yeah, when I, when I figure it out, I'd love to tell you. <laughs> that is uh, the most honest answer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't know. I, I can, um, Terrence probably has, has a good answer for this, actually. I mean, in my, in, in my very limited experience, it's been, um, it's been the interpersonal connection and that's, communication. Yeah. Good answer. That's really where I, I feel I've been able to, in cases where I've been able to communicate clearly and build clear expectations and develop good relationships where, you know, I'm listening to what people are telling me and I'm being clear with my message back. And then they're, you know, they, that's a positive experience for them. Then I'm confident that's somebody I will work with again. And also, I feel confident that it's somebody who will refer other people to me. So in my experience, I think that's probably been the most important thing. What about you? I mean, I would definitely, I'd agree with what you said, but I'll pick something different so that I don't just say the same thing. <laughs> that's kind of a comp out. I do agree with you that that is probably the most important thing. But for me, one thing that I've been trying to focus on recently is uh, being even more organized and along with that organization, having a plan and sticking to it mm, is a big give thing. Me an example. By nature, I think a lot of, a lot of studio people are organized people. Um, it just kind of comes along with, uh, wanting to be into the kind of understanding that it's like the engineering brain behind understanding how music works. So if you have any interest in doing studio stuff or owning your own studio, then you probably have that little bit of organization in your brain by default. Um, but I've been trying to take it a step farther because I think it can be really easy to get obsessive or to get um, fo too focused on only what's right in front of you, the, the thing that's happening right now. Uh, and allow other things in the future that you need to prep for fall by the wayside. So for me, a way I've been doing this is by setting a weekly calendar that kind of has my schedule built out. And, you know, that maybe means on Wednesday, I write a blog post or think about a new topic that I might want to talk about or make a video about. And I just commit that time no matter what's happening, I'm just going to commit that time to doing that thing. And then let's say on Monday and Tuesday, I'm going to be mixing. And no matter what happens, I'm just going to commit that time to mixing. And uh, I can't say that I do it perfectly, but I think that that's going to be an important thing as I grow and move forward. Because otherwise, um, it's it's definitely been a pitfall of me to fall into whenever you whenever you get a big project or something you're excited about you forget about uh uh keeping track of all your invoices or your tax or your tax forms or you know scheduling or following up with people 
all that goes by the wayside because you're excited about something. So the busier you get, the more that kind of snowballs out of control. Oh, I couldn't agree more. That's really well said. I, I definitely run into that as well. And, and actually, when I was leaving my my full time job to go switch to part time, I was talking to one of my coworkers who had just come back from part time back to full time. And he was telling me about his experience. And he said one of the things that killed him was not being able to look for the next job while he was at the same time as he was working on a current job, which is you know, kind of what you're talking about there is that he would get a project and he would great and he would roll up his sleeves and he'd start working on it. And then he wouldn't pick his head up again until he was done. You know, he'd deliver something and now he's got to find his next job and, and you need to keep a pace, right? You need to keep a certain cadence. And that's something yeah. that I definitely struggle with as well. So I like your idea and I, I try to do something similar of keeping weekly slots for certain activity. And I also don't do it every week <laughs> yeah i'm a little more disciplined about that all right let's see here you know let's tackle this one here um anthony lamb or lam not sure how you pronounce your last name anthony uh he's a new member of the group he asked for an easy to understand guide to eq which is something that we might do in the future. I think that that could be a cool giveaway, but maybe we can talk about um, some theory when it comes to EQ or maybe ways that we approach it instead of giving you the guide straight up front. So I'll go first this time since I, I brought this question up. Uh, first of all, it depends on what you're going for, uh, obviously. Like if we think about EQ, what is EQ? It's basically just a volume fader, but uh, specific to individual frequencies. Instead of moving the volume up and down of a whole track, we're only focusing in on, it could be a very, very narrow band, depending on the cue size that we set, or a more broad band, but something less than the whole volume of the spectrum of the track. We're only focusing in on a, a specific frequency spectrum. So with that in mind, um, I always think that before going into EQ something, I think about uh, what needs to change in this instrument part, or does it already sound okay and should I leave it alone? So yeah, that that's a really important thing. Like I never, I never EQ something before thinking of uh, about if I want to change it or how I want mm. it to sound in the future. Yeah, I think I think that that's maybe a better way of saying it. Um, so if I'm listening to a guitar, I'll give this example. If I'm listening to a guitar, the first thing I tend to think is, is this guitar balanced? Is it too bright? Is it too dark? Is it too boxy? Does it have too much mid-range? Is it, uh, does it have too much low end? Is it covering up some of the bass? Is it getting in the way of the vocals? So... I think through all these things really quickly and uh, the hope is the more that you do that kind of an exercise, it becomes more intuitive to the point where you're just running through these questions really quick in your head and then you can quickly identify, oh yes, this is, this guitar is too dull, I want to add some high end. And so I already know what I'm going to do before I start playing around with the EQ. 
Yeah, I, I think the the first thing you said is probably the the simplest. So if you picture, if you take any track you've recorded, you have a fader. You can move the fader up and down. You make that track quieter and louder. And we all kind of understand that intuitively because we've all spent our entire lives dealing with volume knobs. And mm -hmm. EQ is like what you said. It's a, it's it's a volume knob that lets you turn up only certain parts of the frequency spectrum. So instead of turning up the whole track, you can turn up a certain frequency band. And depending on your EQ settings, you could turn up a, a wide frequency band or a narrow frequency band. So what I would tell you is, if you want to just learn like the simplest way to understand EQ, is just pull up any track. The truth is, any track you record, whether it's a cymbal hit or a bass note, is really going to have frequencies kind of spanning the audible frequency range which is we say somewhere between 20 hertz and 20,000 hertz so if you take any track and you just hit play on it you can get uh there's free plugins out there like the one i use is, is blue cat uh frequency analyst or freak analyst that will if you put on your track it'll show you what frequencies are actually on that track and you'll probably be surprised at how many how much frequency content there is so that's the first thing is the you you can kind of visually see which frequencies are going on there. And the next thing you can do is just pull up your stock parametric EQ. We'll save that for another episode what that is, but it's basically an EQ that lets you boost specific bands. You could use any kind of EQ for that. You probably might be familiar with like a graphic equalizer which has a lot of different faders mm -hmm. on it. Pull that up and just one by one crank the fader up and pull the fader down just to see what each one does okay and you'll start to understand some of these things that we're talking about which is which frequencies are important to an instrument or more important to an instrument which are less important which ones do you want to emphasize so for something like a guitar that you've recorded you can do a sweep like that where you boost each frequency one at a time and you'll see certain ones will jump out at you undoubtedly like, oh, that's cool. Like that pushes certain parts of the tone that I want or, oh, that sounds terrible. That is like a resonance and it washes out the notes and you'll start to understand what you're going for there. And as Ben said, the more you do that exercise, the more it'll become second nature to you and you'll, you'll start to understand which frequencies to reach for. But just starting out, I would do that, you know, grab an EQ, slap it on your track. First thing is if you can hear like, oh, there's a problem here and you can't find it, sweeping that EQ across the whole frequency spectrum, see if that problem jumps out at you. If it does, you can pull that frequency down a little bit. But you could do the same thing for enhancing a tone. If you're like, something's missing on this piano, do a sweep and see which part in the sweep sweetens that sound for you. And that's a sound that you can then boost. And that's probably the best way to just start learning about it is pull up an EQ and sweep it across and see what happens. Yeah, well said. I think I want to, in follow-up to that, I'm going to throw something out there, Vadim, and I, I want to hear what you think about this. So I was just recently watching uh, a Nail the Mix episode. I'm always surprised by the biases that I, that I have in my own brain that I don't even realize are there until somebody points them out. Whenever it comes to especially thinking of uh, ways the process tracks with EQ. And I think that uh, the reason I want to bring this up is maybe an argument against looking for uh, an easy, simple guide for EQ. Not to say that that's not a helpful thing when you're starting out or 
not something that I wouldn't advocate or something that we wouldn't even do in the future. But all I'm going to say about that is, uh, in this episode I was watching, um, he was notching out or pulling down a lot of the high-end frequencies of the guitar because they were too bright. And it just kind of snapped something in my brain to think, there's no rule against pulling down the high end of guitars. I have a tendency to do that a lot of the times because a lot of guitars that I tend to work with are too dull and I want to add sparkle to them or bite or edge, whatever so you want to call it. you're adding top end, you're saying? I like to. I like to add top end. But I think sometimes I can get into a habit of thinking to make a guitar sound better, I have to add top end. Mm. Instead of actually listening to what does the track actually sound like and what does it need? Because you could run into situations where there's a bass guitar that needs a lot of the low end removed. But it's a bass guitar. It's supposed to have low end. It's supposed to have more low end, right? More low end will make it sound better. It's not necessarily true though. And this, yeah. this is where the tricky thing with EQ comes in where guides can be helpful to learn where useful frequencies are on instruments to bring out maybe their fundamental frequencies or things that tend to sound nice. But if it already sounds good and you boost it even more, or if it sounds bad in those areas and you boost it, you're making something that sounds bad even worse. So I yeah, EQ is definitely a correct a corrective tool, and we talked about it a little bit last week on the episode where we talked about compressors and compression. Compressors are uh, lend themselves more to something like presets. I always do this. I oh, I never do that. Still, that's not those aren't statements you necessarily want to make, but there's more clear rules of thumb. Whereas EQ really depends on how the track was recorded, what the tones were, what if it's a vocal, what the vocalist's voice was like, what mic they were using, what the room sounded like. It EQ, even though it's one of the simpler tools that we have at our disposal, using it really requires that critical listening skill, right? You yeah. Know, <laughs> uh, maybe more so than, than any other tool. Uh, so I agree with you. There's no really rules of thumb. You're not like, I always boost 5K on a vocal. Like sometimes, not yeah. always. <laughs> yeah. Let's segue into another question from Terrence. Uh, I thought this question was really interesting, and I'm really curious to hear what you have to say about this, Vadim. But he says, why do people still think they have to go into a 4,000-square-foot studio to get a great recording? I have a pretty good-sized project studio that I can track drums, baby grand, keys, bass guitar, vocals, and even horns at the same time. And he still has certain people complain. So he's saying... You know, what is the stigma about this? Why do people think that they should have to have a gigantic room to get a good... I'm guessing that some of the stigma is around people think bigger is better. Uh, so I'll just leave it there. What do you think about this, Vadim? And then I'll share my thoughts as well. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, I think to, to some extent it's um, bigger is better, but also if I spend more money, then I'm more demonstrating my commitment to my art or my music is super important to me and therefore i'm willing 
to spend more money, I'm willing to go into a bigger studio. It, it's kind of um, mm. if you see a pair of shoes that you really, really like, but it costs $15, you're going to ask yourself, well, what am I missing? Why, <laughs> why are these shoes $15? I think some people run into a situation like that where they just think, if I spend more money, I'll get a better product uh, is, is one of my guesses. And another one, maybe it's the ex the experience. Maybe they want that, that big studio experience. And, and I think that's valid to some extent. Yeah. Like, I want to pay for this experience. I'm not just paying for the end result, which might be as good at a project studio. But I'm guessing here because it's not something that I personally can relate to. I, I've gone into a couple of studios, but also obviously... I also co-host a podcast called DIY Recording Guys, <laughs> where our motto is we believe you can get professional quality recordings with minimal gear and a little bit of knowledge. So Wow, impressive. <laughs> impressive, man. Good elevator pitch. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah, that's so I'm glad that you answered it that way because the cost thing never came into my brain with this question. I was mm. thinking more from a technical aspect. So let me respond to what you said at first about the cost thing. So I do think it's, I do think you're right. In some situations, it is totally valid to want to have that studio experience and, and kind of be treated like a king. This kind of reminds me of the last time I went on a big tour with um, Lacey. Um, we were just tired of roughing it because we had been going around in vans and we decided to rent a tour bus for the last tour that we did. And the expectation was, hey, these are bigger shows, but because the bus costs more money, we can't, we can't give you guys a raise. And I was like, I am totally fine with this because <laughs> I, am I am tired of roughing it. So I do think that there's something to be said for are you so let's compare you know a huge commercial space it's going to cost a lot of money mm -hmm. just because the rent has to be higher so the the rates are going to have to be more um let's compare that to coming to vadim's house or my house and recording uh you know whatever instrument in a smaller space are you going to get the same amount of uh you know one-on-one -on -one attention are you going to have the budget to be able to really work out some of your ideas, you know, or which situation would you have more of that? I would argue that you would have more of a, like a hands-on or more time to really craft what you want from a home studio, something smaller. You might not feel like a king like you would, or like maybe, maybe save the commercial space for when you're doing your band documentary video and you want to amaze all your fans. <laughs> yeah, there you go. But, um, you know, there's something to be gained from either, from either, I think. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think you're right. You probably get more of a king treatment at a, at a smaller space. I'll, I buy pizza, you know, if it's a long session, yeah. I buy pizza, I make coffee. Um, I have beer in the fridge that I'm happy to share. So yeah, it is an interesting thing. But uh, you you made a you kind of made a throwaway point at the end there, which I think is is valid to consider. If you're going for, in fact, I've done this. I've rented. There's a studio in Philly that I'll I'll sometimes rent. 
uh, if I'm doing a lot of, if I, if I want to do like media, if I want to take pictures and video because it's an, it, it looks nicer than MySpace and there is something to be said for that. If, if you want that level of credibility, maybe that's worth doing, but from a, from a sound standpoint and a quality standpoint and a, and a, yeah, a service standpoint, how good your experience is, I would not hesitate to consider a small studio, especially Terrence's studio, because that man has, his, <laughs> uh, he's got a lot of cool gear. He's got a, he's got a baby grand. I think now yeah. he's, uh, he's got a cool space. Where I thought he was going with this is more the idea that you can't get a good room sound unless you ah, have a gigantic yes, space. Yes, talk about that. That is a great point. Maybe that's what he was going for. He could have been going for that, but I'm glad that we talked about either. So um, I think that that is a really good question. That That is a really good point to bring up. And I do think that there is a stigma around you know just that cathedral sound. If you go into like a huge like Byzantine Catholic church, with these huge cathedral. Byzantine, okay. Yeah. I just said Byzantine. There's a lot of Byzantine Catholic in my area, so that's okay. why. Yeah. Roman Catholic. There we go. Let's, let's go more mainstream. You go into a big one of these churches, and they've got, like, the huge cathedral ceiling. There's just something awesome about, like, singing in there or hearing a drum set being played in there. Like, yeah. the, the, the ambience is crazy. Uh, but I do think that there's something to be said for You know, is that always the best decision for your room sounds? Do you need that much ambience? And good question. But for me, I can remember recording one of the Fading Lights songs that we did. And I set up room mics in my basement to record our drummer. And I think I put my room mics about, it was like 10 to 12 feet away from the kit. And I felt like, there was too much delay in the room mics for how quick the tempo of the song was. Mm. And I thought to myself, if I was going to do this over again, I would have moved those room mics in a couple feet or more because I just felt like they were, uh, I could, I could kind of hear that room, especially of the shells. I could hear them hitting at that delay uh, or at a delay that just kind of didn't make sense with the tempo of the music or the rhythm of the music. So I, I definitely think depending on the genre or the tempo of the song, you might want a really ambient space or you might want more of a close ambience. Yeah. I mean, that's the way the, the big, it was a huge mindset shift for me when I stopped thinking about reverb as an effect and I started thinking about reverb as a space that you put something into. Mm. That's what we're talking about when you're talking about a cathedral, that's a space. When we put when we put reverb on something, we're putting that something into a space. And so if that cathedral sound, that whatever Terrence said, 40,000 foot <laughs> stadium is what you're going for and it works, then great, you'll get you, you get the sound you want right when you hit record. But first of all, it may not always be as you said, and second of all, I can always control that in a mix. I would, you know, if you have a drier recording, we can always add that sense of space. We can put things into a bigger space later where we have more control over it. So I think, yeah, there's a misconception there because you're right. We've all had that experience of singing in a, in a cave or uh, revving our car 
a, a guy I, yeah. I used to know who really loved his his car would rev his engine under a bridge because he loved the the <laughs> echo like yeah i mean that's that's a cool effect if if it works and if it doesn't then you're stuck with it and you can't undo it yeah especially and especially too like it might be something that sounds good on its own but in the context of a mix with other instruments it might not make sense at all yeah and also like do you want everything in that space because if you record your yeah. all you want all your horns and your drums and your bass to all have that cathedral delay like okay <laughs> maybe <laughs> yeah very true all right um here's a here's a softball one I want to start recording music, but I have no idea where to start. Yeah, if you can answer any of these questions or have some advice, that would be helpful. Firstly, do you need a different type of microphone to record guitar, vocals, and drums? Or can the same be used for all? Also, is it worth buying editing software? Finally, any examples of decent, cheap microphones? Go ahead, Ben. Give me, give me your thoughts. Cool. So firstly, do you need different types of microphones? Secondly, editing software. And thirdly, examples of decent, cheap microphones. Okay. No, you don't need different microphones. You could use one microphone to do all three of those. And in essence, I, I like taking this approach because I think it's a very DIY approach. And it's, it's the way that I learned it started um but essentially all microphones work in kind of the same or a similar way each microphone is designed to do a specific task but it really functions the same as any other microphone so i would say for some more specific advice on that i would say whatever microphone you wind up buying or decide to get first have it be something that does whatever you're going to be recording the most well. So if you're mostly a guitar player, pick a microphone that might be a well-rounded mic, like an SM57 that you could use on drums or vocals, but I think excels at recording guitar, and especially a guitar cabinet. Uh, if you're going to be doing mostly vocals, pick up something now this is i wouldn't consider this a cheap mic it's on the lower end of being uh or the higher end of being cheap or the lower end of being you know mid-range <laughs> or expensive but i would say pick up a sm7b it's a great microphone uh, i think you can probably find one used for 300 bucks or brand new 400 uh but it's a great mic it sounds good on pretty much any vocalist and you can use it on pretty much any instrument source as well so that would be my advice as far as that goes. Uh, the second question was that, should I buy editing software or was that third? Yeah. Editing software. If what you mean by editing software is a DAW, I would suggest yes, because you're going to have more power over uh, editing the individual samples or the, the individual, um, you're gonna, just going to have more fine-tuned editing capabilities with the DAW than you would with just a free program or something else that you, I'll give a great example. <laughs> Trying to edit things in uh, Filmora 9 is kind of a nightmare. <sighs> yeah, so not to, throw, not to throw shade at the company because it's an easy program to use, but 
I try to teach I try to use it as uh like an audio editor and it just doesn't work like that. No. So you definitely <laughs> Yeah, uh, I, w- I would say question? if you're just starting out, I I would actually recommend people I recommend if you're on Apple to use GarageBand. The the key is you oh, want yeah. a software that that has multi-track capability so you can dig in track by track. But yeah, if you're on Apple, I just start with GarageBand, great introductory DAW and it'll lead you up to um logic if you if you want to if, if you decide it's it's for you uh, on a pc start with audacity it's free um not great for editing but it can do a lot and you'll you'll cut your teeth on multi-tracking and then you can decide from there so yeah and uh what's your recommendation on decent cheap microphones sm57 for sure yeah, it's hundred dollars. Yeah. I, I would, I would say, say definitely go... dynamic microphone, and the yeah, SM50 mm-hmm. just can't go wrong with it. SM57 and SM58 are, we've said it a hundred times. It's less than a hundred dollars. It's the only microphone that's used in every studio in the world that costs less than a hundred dollars. About yeah. that, I would say too. Another rule of thumb, because just saying uh, cheap is a very vague term. <laughs> so, so I will, I'll go on the record and say that. Uh, I wouldn't go any cheaper than a hundred dollar microphone. I mean, maybe sometimes if there's a deal on something, but I think a hundred dollars is kind of the minimum level that you want to go for purchasing any quality studio equipment. Okay. I can dig it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Next one. Um, Ooh, okay. This is a good one. This question is about recording stereo guitars. Oh, so by a guitarist. So I'm building out a pedal board. The last thing I need to be done with it, done with it in quotes, because you're never done with your pedal board. Never. Everybody knows that. Especially the last thing players. I need to be done with it is a reverb. And the question here is, um, I'm hoping that by putting a stereo reverb at the end of my chain, I will be able to get two different guitar tracks by playing once. I have done a fair bit of reading. I think it will put a light overdrive on one side after the reverb pedal to get some variation between the tracks. I figure if I can do this twice, I'll have a I'll have four nice guitar tracks that I can pan left and right. Is this a good way to go about recording multiple tracks of guitar to get a big sound? I'm very think? concerned. I'm very concerned. You're concerned? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. State your concerns my, or forever yeah, I'll give your peace. Yeah, I'll give you my thoughts. Um, first of all, first of all, what would be, let's, let's take it a step back I love back when you answer say, questions with, first of all, that's always a good, that's a great cadence to start an answer with. <laughs> I've got a list. I've got a, I'm planning on making a big list. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so the first thing that comes to mind is, uh, let's ask a rhetorical question. Why would we want to put w- more than one guitar track of the same thing in a mix? That The main reason would be is that you want more stereo width from your guitar part. Let's say that you have one guitar track that's already recorded and you pan it hard left. 
let's say we duplicate that track in our DAW and then pan that hard right. What is the result? Do we get a super wide guitar sound? No, we get a we get a guitar sound that's straight up the middle, still sounds like one guitar, but it's twice as loud. And why is that? It's because it's the same guitar part. Our ears can't distinguish the difference between the two performances because they are identical. So we just hear it as something being in the center, but twice as loud because there's two of them and they add on top of each other. So how do we get something that sounds wide? We have to make something that sounds uh, different, but the same, the same part, but a different performance to change it up. So that's the first thing that jumps out in my brain is you're not going to get that, that width that you're looking for by just splitting your signal chain. I don't think you're saying split, split is signal chain. I think you're saying you put a, you have your whole signal chain and then you just have a stereo reverb at the end of it. So this is some reverb pedal that takes a mono input and spits out a left and a right. Right. All right. But I, I take your point that you're not going to get the desired like massive wall of sound because you're, what you're going to get there is you're going to get your dry signal. If you have a, like a wet, wet, dry mix knob or something like that, you're going to get a dry signal that's still coming right up the middle. And then you'll get some stereo spread to the sides, but it's still not going to be that effect of two guitars, uh, coming up yeah. the sides at you and, and what you said is true you talk about the literally the only thing that stereo is by definition is the difference between the left channel and the right channel so and then right if i'm wearing headphones how does stuff fool my brain i have sound coming in from right ear sound coming in from left ear how does uh the sound fool my brain into thinking something is coming right up the middle well it's by right making the right and the left the same so yeah, you're not going to get that that desired effect uh, from just a stereo reverb. Also, on top of that, um, I can't imagine the horrors of putting a distortion pedal after a reverb pedal. <laughs> you did say that. Have you ever um, tried? Have you ever tried that? No. I've compressed. Re I compress after a reverb sometimes. Yeah, I don't think that would ever work because you're changing the. You're changing the physical space that the guitar is in by by adding really the reverb and it's yeah i don't know i've never tried that i will say that a cool idea can be like if you want to play with um if you have a left guitar and a right guitar and you send the left guitar to the right reverb and send the right guitar to the left reverb that might be cool depending on what you're trying to do um i could see that being creating some interesting movement in the mix mm. um yeah, that might be interesting. I don't know. All right, we'll do a couple more here. Maybe one or two more. Um, ooh, here's a good one. Okay, I'm not sure where to begin to make the sound at least a little more studio and a little less bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> and then a little, uh, there's an elaboration here. You know the sound, the kind of sound where it's maybe the kits or plugins you use seem to sound fine but when you hit play there's something homemade about it <laughs> so uh yeah it just goes on with that is it eq general ambiance fillings etc 
So yeah, what are your thoughts there? It is funny, but like I'm laughing because there's nothing about producing music in a bedroom that should inherently make it a bedroom, especially what he mentioned about like using drums that are plugins. Or what if you're plugging your guitar straight into your, your interface? You're not recording anything physically in your bedroom, so why does it still sound like a bedroom? But I can definitely <laughs> I can definitely hear what he means though. There is something that we mm. associate with cheap or bedroom sounding that is different than a pro mix. And I think the first thing that jumps out to me, the first thing that I hear that that lets me know something is amateur is instruments that don't that don't sound like they're in the same genre or don't have the same ambience together. So like guitar tones, <laughs> I'm thinking of a specific album that I heard. Uh, I picked up a local band CD whenever I went to go see them play and they were a great live band, but their album was terrible because it sounded like their drummer was in a metal band, but the rest of the band was in like a, a folky indie funk band. <laughs> oh my God. Wow. Yeah, that's that sounds I mean, like that's a Mike Patton project. A Mike Patton? Yeah. You know Mike Patton? Who's, no, I don't think I know. He's Mike the lead Patton. singer of Faith No More, but he also has all those weird. Oh, yeah. Like he does like Tomahawk and Peeping Tom and uh, just weird oddball off key projects where they're yes. not quite metal, not quite funk, not quite folk. Yeah, but kind of kind of like that. And, but that's on purpose. I, mean, I know what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. Like um uh, that that's an extreme example, but I think that that more than anything else that just shows that the the musicians aren't thinking they're not thinking of a cohesive sound together. They're still being they're still thinking of what they want to hear and what they want to sound like individually in instead of mm. yeah, individually instead of being a collective whole. Mm, but uh, I have some other things, but you know, I'll let you go, Vadim. That's the first thing that jumps out to me. Yeah, I would say the 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 big thing for me is what our last point was on on reverb. It's this it's the use of space, and there's two problems that commonly jump out to me. The first one is everything sounds flat. Everything's on the same plane, and uh, it just sounds like very two-dimensional. So everything mm. is too dry. That always sounds homemade to me. And the second thing is where everything sounds like it was recorded in a bedroom. So there's room noise, small room reverb, like you're getting now, because I'm in, uh, <laughs> I didn't mention this, but I'm at my <laughs> parents' house. I'm just in a bedroom right now. And you, if you listen to other episodes where I'm in my studio, there's a much drier sound, or like Ben's sound is much drier. I'm sure that this microphone is picking up a lot of room noise right now. That room sound, especially on lots of instruments, oh, to me always sounds homemade. And I'm like, that's not a professional like decision. Nobody's doing that. You can have that room, small room reverb sometimes in a certain genre on a certain instrument, but if all your instruments have it and your vocals have it, then it sounds like you recorded <laughs> it in that room. Literally, yeah. you've put the reverb, the small bedroom reverb on every single instrument that always sounds homemade to me. So those two things, no space and your space is a small bedroom. Yeah, I agree with that. I, th I think those are the biggest things. And I mean, 
more more than that it's just experience you know the more you the more you practice the better you get at it the less amateur it sounds really it's kind of that simple yeah but. that's true <laughs> that's the why yeah uh that's the that's the root cause yes uh let's do one more and then i've got a follow-up one after you do one more here oh you do yes okay not you for me do- it was the one i mentioned it's the one i mentioned from um from my friend about mastering oh yeah 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 let's do that let's do that one okay we'll do that one so i recently had somebody reach out to me uh for a song that i mixed and mastered he reached out to me and said hey um i was just curious if this track is mastered because volume wise it's quieter than other masters i've gotten from other mastering engineers i thought it was a great question and you know, I thought that maybe this would be a great place to answer this kind of question without opening too big of a can of worms and going mm-hmm. into a f- four-hour episode of what is mastering. But uh, maybe we could just tackle the loudness portion of that or why a certain master tracks would sound louder or quieter than other ones. Yeah. Um, I actually do want to like bring up that, that concept, though, of what is a mastered track. Uh, quickly so because it, it's not obvious and i actually heard somebody talking about this recently which really brought the context back for me in a way i hadn't thought of before but it used to be back in the day when people were recording on consoles to uh, onto tape and you know a completely analog workflow the mastering engineer was the person who actually made sure that the mix was ready to be applied to the final medium. So let's say that was a vinyl record. The mastering engineer, knowing the ins and outs of how that record was cut, would make sure that that final mix was balanced or was was just formatted, quote-unquote, in a way to be able to work for the vinyl medium. And they would also then cut that vinyl. So mastering engineer's job was was very specific. As we get into digital workflows, which most of us have now, that definition evolves a little bit because we're not changing format. It's already digital and it's going to be distributed as digital. Even a CD is a digital file format, right? So the role of the concept of what is mastering has changed. And we've talked about on our mastering episodes that the pro- a lot of the processing we're doing is the same. So the first thing I think to just spike out there uh, before I let you answer about loudness is the fact that there's no clear bright line anymore between mixing Mm -hmm. and mastering unless you've chosen to make a clear bright line in your workflow. Uh, You're really just doing more mixing or maybe you're letting somebody else do a little more mixing and we're calling that mastering. So it's not a clear, bright line like it used to be. But yeah, go ahead and, and, and talk a little bit about the loudness portion of that. Sure. So loudness-wise, um, and my answer, to, my answer to this client that had this question was, so when I, and this is just personally me, and then maybe we could talk about, you know, what other engineers would do. So me, when I'm mastering a track, Normally what I'm doing loudness wise is I normally push my tracks uh, as loud as I think that I can appropriately get them for the genre without adding any 
uh, noticeable distortion artifacts or losing my dynamics too much. And in general, I work with uh, hard rock, metal, heavy music in general. So that tends to want to be pushed a little bit more than other genres like uh, classical music. So that's kind of typically my approach to things because um, I like dynamics in a music and, and I feel like modern music is way more forgiving for that because probably the, the two ways that people consume music or new music the most often now is through YouTube and Spotify, which both they do normalization, which means they'll pull down the audio, the average volume of your track to match um, an arbitrary volume that they pick as being their normalization level. I feel like because I'm not mastering songs for CDs or to go on terrestrial radio, that I don't have to worry about the loudness wars as much and I don't have to push my mixes to sound louder than other people's. That's Yeah, I think you're right. I guess that I, I maybe missed the point of the question a little bit in my initial answer there. But yeah, I, I think it's it's a conscious decision that needs to be discussed. I would say, like in, in my experience, I usually ask people what are you going to do with these songs? Are these just going up on Spotify or are you going to print, you're going to actually uh, burn CDs? And depending on their answer, we can talk about what's appropriate. Um, so that's a discussion you should be having with whoever's doing the work for you uh, or if you're doing it yourself, yeah. which uh, obviously is something we uh, <laughs> near and dear to our hearts. Um, and also, of course, when you're comparing, whether you're comparing an unmastered song to a mastered song or whether you're comparing your finished mastered song to a commercial track we've talked about the necessity to match the level by ear so whichever one is louder take the fader pull it down to match the track that you're comparing or whatever just mm -hmm. to, to just to match the, the levels between the two tracks so you can get a realistic comparison uh rather than being fooled by louder is is better but um i think very commonly you'll get different masters for different media so like an album i just finished for a band uh they were doing a vinyl release and a digital release and a cd release and we did three different versions of the master with different loudness levels and different eq characteristics and different amount of sub frequencies and different amounts of high end to match those three different distribution hmm. mediums. That's very interesting. Yeah. Cool, man. Well, good questions. Sort yeah, of great questions. Q&A. We should do it again sometime. What are you drinking, by the way? Oh, it's a whiskey. I'm not sure what whiskey it was. Rebel. Rebel whiskey. What is that? Is that a bourbon? I don't think it's a bourbon. What the heck is it? I'll let you know next time. Yeah, I'm curious. I'm always, uh, I'm always interested in that. I had a Cabernet Sauvignon today. Oh my gosh! We usually don't drink when we record, but uh, boozy Q and A it was. <laughs> that it was, my friend. All right. Well, it was great talking to you as always. And until next mm -hmm. time, it's the DIY recording guys reminding you to check yourself before you wreck yourself.
you're enjoying the podcast, take a minute to leave a rating wherever you like to listen to it or share it with your friends on social media. Also, Benjamin and I are working engineers and we love helping people turn ideas into finished productions. So if you're interested in working with one of us or just want to discuss a project you're working on, reach out. You can find my work at calmfrogrecording.com. Get me on Instagram at calmfrogrecording or shoot me an email vk at calmfrogrecording.com. And you can check Benjamin's workout at dreamloudstudio.com. Hit him up on Instagram at dreamloudstudio or by email ben at dreamloudstudio.com. And finally, join our Facebook group to engage with a whole group of friendly, like-minded people who are interested in DIY recording. Just search for DIY Recording Guys on Facebook. Thank you so much for listening and for your continued support. I'll see you next week.